This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Yeah, we saw the little telescope. Well, it wasn't little. There was like a little uh, mm-hmm. building that was an observatory. Right. Yeah. Right. How cool is you, that? Do you think they let you use that telescope? Yes, they do. I mean, you just like they're, look, they're not going to let what... you, Matt Smith, walk in and use it. <laughs> or you, Karen Smith, right. walk in and use it. But that wasn't, <laughs> wasn't just me that's excluded from directing the telescope, right? right? But if you're with Ranger Bob... Bob can. Um, I think if you, Bob. If can you use have a it. star that you want to see, or planet, or <laughs> constellation, then Bob will mm, dial it up for I you. I guess so. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith, and I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today, we're taking you to a remote area of northwestern New Mexico to an NPS site that's considered the crown jewel of all the ancient ruins in the southwest, Chaco Culture National Historic Park. While the Four Corners region has been inhabited for well over 10,000 years, a cultural and architectural explosion was ignited 1,200 years ago. And during this time of unprecedented transformation, the people of Chaco Canyon established a vast trading network with the construction of roads, and they erected some of the most significant architecture ever built by Native Americans, the ruins of which are still standing today. In this episode, we'll talk about some of the things to see and do when you visit Chaco Culture and why this remarkable park should be on your bucket list. All right, before we get started on Chaco Culture, we wanted to mention something that we had discussed in our last podcast episode, and those are the vehicle reservations that everyone is going to need to get if they are visiting Glacier National Park this summer of 2023. Yeah, we did a social post about that, and that got a lot of reaction from people, a lot of negative reaction, but we're just reporting the facts. I mean, the it, it is what it is. Right. People were unhappy with that. So after we posted our reel on Instagram, kind of outlined the different areas of Glacier, the four areas that you're going to need four separate reservations for, then the Glacier National Park website shared our reel. Oh, yeah, they did. And they got so many negative comments about the reservation system that the woman who runs that account had to turn off comments for that post. But you have to get the word out to people. Yeah, right. It wasn't about asking people's opinion. It was just the fact is this is happening. And if you want to plan a trip there, you, you should know about this and, and plan ahead. So we want to clarify one thing that we said. Now, these reservations that you need to get um, to drive into these areas 
they are good between 6 a.m. and 3 p.m. And so we said, and the park says on their website, if you don't have a reservation, you can go in before 6 or after 3, which is correct, except we had one of our Instagram followers, and I know she listens to our podcast also, Susan, she messaged us and pointed out that the specific area of West Glacier, that first part of going to the Sun Road, they are doing construction on it this summer, as they I think they did last summer also. Right. And so they're saying that there's going to be no admittance before 6 a.m. Exactly. So the whole trick of going in before you need a reservation is not going to work in the west entrance. Right, because they are actually going to be doing construction all night, and so they won't start letting people in until 6 a.m., and those are the people that will have the vehicle reservations. So the only thing you can do is if you want to go up to Logan Pass and get up there early and hike, you're going to have to go in the east entrance. That one, you can go in before 6 a.m. if you don't have a reservation. But you need to know that ahead of time because trying to drive from the west entrance all the way to the east entrance of going to the Sun Road is a very long drive. <laughs> right, it, it is. And I think this brings up a really good point. With any information we give you, it can change. Sure. And so you always got to be looking at the park website because, uh, you know, the construction could end and then all of a sudden they let people in before six. So as you're planning your trip, check the park website and make sure uh, you know the current information. Right. They also uh, mentioned on the website that they are replacing a lot of the older bridges and glacier this summer. And so traffic is going to be impacted by that as well. So if you're planning to visit glacier this summer, you better pack your patience because I think there's going to be, you know, a lot of road construction and possibly a lot of delays. Yeah, that's the thing about these mountainous parks. A lot of the construction they can only do during the summertime, and those are the most popular times. So it is what it is. They have to keep the maintenance up on the facilities and the roads. So yeah, it might be a little bit more challenging in 2023 in Glacier National Park. Right. But of course, uh, as, as those of you who have been there know, it's, it will be totally worth it. That's right. All right, Matt. All right, Karen. Moving on to our feature of today, Chaco Culture. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad you finally came up from all of your research, about three weeks of research to do <laughs> one one-hour podcast on this. <laughs> you were worried that this was going to be like a three-hour podcast episode, weren't you? I Which, was by the way, it still could be. <laughs> I, I wasn't worried. <laughs> I just let the recorder go, let you tell all the stuff you found out about the, the place. But yeah, we we visited last October. And it was a surprise because we had a, a couple of extra days uh, that, that we hadn't planned for. So we added this to our itinerary and really glad we did because I think it would have taken a long time for this this particular NPS site to come up on our list of planned trips. I think we mentioned in a, a previous podcast about how that trip, we had two disappointments, the Cardiac Canyon our tour with the Navajo people, they canceled that because there was a storm that came through the canyon. So that freed up one day. And then our rim to rim hike got canceled. 
Both of those were very disappointing. However, visiting Chaco Culture, which we just kind of came up with when we realized we had two extra days, made up for that disappointment in spades. <laughs> yeah, it's really uh, an interesting National Park Service site, and we're going to tell you all about it. We are. So if you have been in the Four Corners area of um, the United States, and this is the Colorado Plateau where you have New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and Arizona meet. That's the Four Corners. Not just a spectacular landscape, but you have some of the largest and most spectacular ruins in the United States. Yeah, we have been to a lot of ruins over the years. And when we first started going to these places, I kind of got the impression that whatever place we visited, whether it was Walnut Canyon or Wapatki or Mesa Verde, I always thought that, well, these these must be the only ones in the entire Southwest. And as you start to do the research and realize there are a lot of ancient ruins all over the Southwest. And when you, once you start learning about each one, the puzzle pieces start to fall in place and understand. I mean, there are a lot of people in this area. They were moving around. They were creating cultures. They lived in places for hundreds of years, and then they moved on and created other places to live. So it was a pretty dynamic area before white Europeans showed up. It was. And that brings up a good point in that they they have a blanket term for these people. Um, they call them the ancestral Puebloan people. But as you just pointed out, they lived in very different types of architecture. They had different styles of pottery. They had a lot of cultural diversity. And when you go to these places, it's striking how different they are. For instance, let's talk for a second about one of our favorite places, Mesa Verde, how different it is from Chaco culture, even though they're only, I don't know, maybe three hours apart. Well, the big difference between Mesa Verde and Chaco culture, other than the time frame where people were living there, is most of Mesa Verde, if not all of it, is built into cliffs. Right. Uh, there's a couple of houses that that kind of have a little bit of a flat area against the cliff, but those are cliff dwellings. Whereas Chaco Culture, these were places built out on flat areas. Uh, they weren't built into the cliffs. And of course, at Mesa Verde, if you've been there, you know that most of the tours um, are only ranger-led. And for good reason, once you get there and you realize you have to scale ladders and it's a little trickier to get to, to these ruins. In Chaco Culture, these are self-guided tours. It's just a completely different landscape. It's a completely different culture. Both equally great. We loved Mesa Verde and we loved Chaco Culture. Yeah, but it was fun to see a, a different style. And it was fun to be able to just walk up to them and through them. Now, you're supposed to stay off the walls. You're not supposed to sit on the walls, climb on the walls, and be respectful of the structures that are left. But still, there are plenty of hard surfaces you can walk on and get right up in these places. Exactly. And you can spend as much time as you want. And that's the other thing that we loved about Chaco Culture is that you know, when you're on a ranger-led tour at Mesa Verde, they take you through at their pace, and you are with, a, you know, a group of maybe 20 people. But you can be on your own at Chaco Culture in this vast desert landscape, and you can spend as much time as you want wandering and taking photos and trying to figure out what life must have been like back then. Yeah, it's fun to look at the different size rooms and wonder, like, did a family live in there, or is that the storage area? 
And we will uh, talk about some of that. First, let's let's mention that uh, Chaco Culture is a World Heritage Site, and it's also an international dark sky park. So, Matt, what is the purpose of this park? What does it protect? Well, Karen, the park protects the 16 great houses of Chaco Canyon, the largest, best preserved, and most complex prehistoric architectural structures in North America. (laughs) That's a mouthful. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) From about 850 to 1150 AD, the people of Chaco attained unprecedented achievements in architecture, agriculture, engineering, and astronomy, and they created an important trading center with thousands of miles of trade routes. Really, the scale and the sophistication of these uh, communities really were unparalleled for that area. Exactly. The things they were able to accomplish during that time period is really remarkable. So not only did they have these monumental public and ceremonial buildings, these great houses, but they also had an elaborate system of engineered and constructed roads, many of which you can still trace. I mean, these roads went out for hundreds and hundreds of miles. They stretched across the landscape in these straight lines that were considered an engineering marvel at the time, because you have to remember back then they didn't have compasses, they didn't have the use of wheels, or any pack animals like horses, mules, anything like that. So what they were able to build in this uh, city, if you will, is pretty remarkable given the era that they lived in. So where the heck is it, Karen? <laughs> it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah you, you have to know where you're going. You're not going to stumble across it. You're not going to go down a major highway and then all of a sudden see a sign and, and, and turn off and you're there. It's in northwestern New Mexico. And both the routes to get there from either coming from the north or the south Both include dirt roads. Right. And these roads, both of them, are infrequently maintained and they can become impassable during bad weather or, you know, if if there's been a heavy rain or a flash flood. Now, we stayed on our visit, we stayed in Farmington, which is to the north. It's about a 90-minute drive. Um, We took Highway 550 south to the turnoff, which is well-signed. And from there, the dirt road was about 13 miles. And when we started on the dirt road, I thought, well, this isn't too bad. (laughs) No, no, it it, it was in pretty good shape. Um, Uh About the first nine miles were. the, The last four were pretty rough. We were there on a perfectly dry day, which was, which was great. And, uh, we were in a forerunner. Uh, we didn't really have any trouble. And, and quite frankly, we saw every kind of vehicle that day mm-hmm. out on those roads. We saw minivans. We saw small sedans. Uh, you just have to adjust your speed for what vehicle you're in. Exactly. These roads, these dirt roads are either maintained by the county or they're maintained by the Navajo Nation. Navajo land runs through this area. They are not maintained by the park. Now, once you pass that park entrance sign, the road magically is perfectly fine. But double check before you go, literally the morning before you go to make sure because they will post on the park website if either the north access road or the south access road has washed out. And that would be very important to know. Yeah. So that's how you get there. If you're uh, staying up north or coming from the north, uh, like we said, we, we stayed in Farmington. Now, if you're Coming from Santa Fe, it, it would be about a little over a three-hour drive. And Albuquerque's a little bit closer, probably just under three-hour drive. Mm-hmm. 
if you are headed down to see the parks, if you're flying in and out of Albuquerque and, and seeing the parks like White Sands and Carlsbad Caverns, uh, you know, it, it would be a very long day trip to do this, but perhaps you could find lodging closer to the park. Or there is a, a campground right there, the Gallo Campground. It looked like a nice campground. I know. I would like to stay there. And it was full when we were, you know, mm. in, in mid-October. It was sold out. Uh, there were a lot of canvas tents up. Yeah. And I'm not sure what those were. I don't know if those were, are put there by the site and you can rent them or it was just a group that, mm. that all had similar tents. But uh, yeah, it, it's a popular place. It is. There are 49 sites um, and you can reserve those on recreation.gov. So you definitely want to get on ahead of time if you want to get a spot. It's a very pretty setting. It sits... Um, it sits just uh, kind of butted up against the mesa. I guess they also, Matt, I was reading, they had to move a couple of the camp sites away from the cliffs because there were some falling rocks. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad they moved those campsites. <laughs> so when you look at the map of the campsites <laughs> and you're choosing one. Don't want rocks <laughs> you falling might 300 feet on top of your head. Right. You might want to oh. choose one far away from the cliff edge. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, since it's a dark sky park, it would be amazing to be there, you know, once it got dark. Yeah, for sure. All right. So the park is open year round, except for Thanksgiving Day, Christmas Day and New Year's Day. And as we mentioned, the majority of the park and the cultural sites are self-guided year round. Uh, So there are six major sites which are located along a nine mile one way canyon loop drive. And there are little parking areas where you can get out and walk through these ruins. So it's set up very nicely. Yeah, it it's it is one way. So if you're trying to find a particular site, you might want to drive slow. Usually, I don't like slow drivers in, on park roads, but this is one where if you miss it, <laughs> it's another nine mile drive back to it. So we did circle a few we, times. We did. <laughs> we missed a couple of them. Uh, fortunately, we had plenty of time to do the nine mile uh, route again. Now, this park is not open at 24 hours. So if you're there in the busy season, which is considered November 1st to April 30th, the gates are open from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. And from May 1st to October 31st, the gates are open from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. So that brings up a good point. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but if you're camping and you're getting there later than, let's say, 5 p.m. during the off-peak season... Are you not going to be able to get to your campsite? Well, remember, the campground was before the oh, gates. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's right. Yeah, good yeah. point. Right. Yeah. So. Yes, you can get to your campsite. <laughs> yes. You just can't get into the site with, with all the ruins. Right, exactly. Now, they do have uh, ranger-led programs throughout the year, but as usual, it's going to be dependent on staffing. During the busy season, April through October, they also have night sky programs and telescope viewing of the dark sky on Fridays and Saturdays, and that would be a cool thing to do. Yeah, we saw the little telescope. Well, it wasn't little. There was like a little uh, mm-hmm. building that was an observatory. Right, yeah. right. How cool that you, is that? Do you think they let you use that telescope? Yes, they do. I mean, just like they're, look, they're not going to let you, what... Matt Smith, walk in and use it. <laughs> or you, Karen Smith, right. walk in and use it. But that wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't just me that's excluded from directing the telescope, right? right? But if you're with Ranger Bob... Bob can. Um, I think if you, Bob. If can you have use a it. star that you want to see, or planet, or <laughs> constellation, Bob will 
dial it up for I you? I guess so. Yes. You're making that up. You don't, you don't know. <laughs> People are going to go all the way there and um, say that they no, want to, I want to see Taurus. And Bob's like, no, they're in a, it's not, it's not on the agenda tonight. I have a little bit more about this in my history channel. If you would like to, uh, if you'd like wait. me to start that, I cannot <laughs> stop obsessing wait. about <laughs> what you can view. <laughs> are we ready to move on? <laughs> yes. Yes, we are. Okay. So since this episode is kind of one big history channel in and of itself, this little history channel segment is going to talk about the park history and the white people history, if you will. So Matt, this is going to start with and kind of centered a little bit on a man named Richard Weatherill. Does that sound familiar to you? Yes, I know all about Richard okay, Weatherill. Okay, who is he? he I, this he, is like a little pop quiz. He <laughs> uh, was searching for cattle one day, and he stumbled across the sites at Mesa Verde. Yes, ding, 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 Yeah, ding. no, I, I, I know some stuff. You do know yeah. some stuff. If you have been on any of the Mesa Verde tours, they do talk about Richard Weatherill. And in fact, the uh, Mesa up there is called Weatherill Mesa, right? <laughs> At Mesa Verde. Yes. If you say so. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened was, Richard was grazing his cattle along the Mancos River south of their ranch in Colorado, and the ancient ruins in the canyon were known to the Weatherill brothers. And in 1888, Richard and his brother first laid eyes on what they later named Cliff Palace from the top of the mesa. So Richard, his brothers, his dad, his neighbors, and pretty much everybody they knew started excavating Cliff Palace, which is the largest cliff dwelling in the United States. And it had been undisturbed for 700 years until the they showed up. So they were digging, excavating, cataloging, photographing, and gathering artifacts at Mesa Verde. That's that's a great history segment, <laughs> history channel segment. Thank you, Karen, for that that history. <laughs> oh, Matt, we're just getting started. All right. So fast forward now. That was so that was um, 1888 when he saw Cliff Palace. In 1896, after excavating Mesa Verde and some other ancestral Puebloan sites in the area, Richard petitioned to excavate the sites at Chaco Canyon. So he formed with some other people the Hyde Exploring Expedition led by George Pepper from the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. And this was funded by the Hyde family and led by Richard Wetherill. This expedition established large excavations at Pueblo Bonita, which is the biggest of the great houses there at Chaco. At this point, though, at this point, the Weatherill family was suffering from financial losses. Their ranch in Colorado was heavily in debt, and Richard needed a source of income. So he opened a trading post in Chaco Canyon, and he utilized the rooms at Pueblo Bonito to store goods not only store goods, but he used the wooden beams in the structure of the ruin to build himself and his wife a three-room house. <laughs> so he started taking apart the ruins and using the material mm -hmm. to build his own house. And they started selling 
selling stuff off that he had found in them. Well, yes, um, that's the story. So by 1901, now he and his wife, business is booming. They have they are now operating eight trading posts. They have a wholesale store in Albuquerque and a retail store in New York. And mostly what they're doing is they're buying and reselling Navajo rugs. Yeah, that's, the Weatherills were getting on it. That's man. right. They, 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 they were found mm, their thing. <laughs> that's right. They were stacking up the cash. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Stacking it to the ceiling. Stacking it to the yeah. (laughs) Stacking the Jacksons to the ceiling. Right. How we would say it here. But people weren't too happy about what was going on here. So um, his activities at Chaco Canyon aroused the ire, the wrath of professional archaeologists. So in 1901. Edgar Lee Hewitt, the president of the New Mexico Highlands University, accused the Weatherills of being professional pot hunters and vandalizing the ruins of Chaco. The governor of New Mexico Territory and the Santa Fe Archaeological Society joined in this accusation. However, federal investigations in 1901 and 1902 cleared the Weatherills of the charges, but... By this point, Richard was pushed out of his position with the Hyde Exploring Expedition. So they they could only do it for a while. And then people caught on. It's like, no more of this. Exactly. And because of that, Matt, because of what went on there, in 1906, this Edgar Hewitt, he helped pass the Federal Antiquities Act, which was the first federal legislation to protect these archaeological sites from being raided from the artifacts being sold and so on. So prior to the Antiquities Act, designating land as a national park or reserve required an act of Congress as well as presidential approval. But the act made the establishment of national monuments an administrative action that was quicker and easier to execute. So it didn't require an act of Congress, just the president had to sign off on it. Right. The president could just do it Mm -hmm. as as an administrative task. So it was a good thing that they just gave the president the authority to kind of shut this down. Otherwise, a, a lot of this stuff would have been lost forever. Well, exactly. And then to specifically protect Chaco Canyon, the following year, 1907, Theodore Roosevelt declared it a national monument. Now, of course, in 1907, you have to remember the National Park Service wasn't established until 1916. So Chaco at this point was monitored through inspections and by canyon residents. There's no official oversight by the National Park Service because it didn't exist. And one last note about Richard, Richard Wetherill. Yeah. So in 1910, even though he's been prohibited from further excavation, he's continuing to ranch and live in Chaco Canyon. And he still has a trading post at Pueblo Bonito. However, later that year, he was murdered by a Navajo Indian Um, They believe stemming from a dispute about a stolen horse. And he and his wife are buried in a small cemetery just west of Pueblo Bonita, just right there. And we didn't know this while we were there. I know. Otherwise, we would have kind of looked that up. But Yeah, I I think you can go see. They said there's a small fence. um, And so I would like to go and just kind of see where that is. Yeah, we'll put that on the list for when we go back. All right, wrapping up History Channel. In 1980, Chaco Canyon was redesignated Chaco Culture National Historical Park. One more note, Matt. Yeah. 
since you're so interested. Yeah, yeah. In 1998, Chaco established the first observatory in the National Park Service. So the observatory, as you mentioned, has a dome and a telescope. These were donated, assembled, and operated by volunteers. And the observatory is used for research and, and public programs. And, of course, the park is engaged in ongoing efforts to protect the night skies in the San Juan Basin. That is very interesting. I still think if I were there on a slow day, slow night, they'd let me operate the telescope. Well, when we go back to yeah. camp and to see if we can find Richard's grave, we will ask them about yeah. that, I'm sure. <laughs> Camping away from the mesas and so the rocks don't fall on us? Right. And, you know, what's interesting is that um, evidence suggests that the Chacoan people were also expert sky watchers, and they knew about the cyclical and the seasonal patterns of the sun and the moon and the stars. Well, they they had a lot of time to look at the sky. Mm-hmm, they they didn't have TV. They didn't have uh, right. internet. Yeah, so they they were probably pretty skilled at reading the stars and tracking their movements so that they can tell what exactly what time of year it is. And yeah, that yes. ma- makes total sense. It does. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so let's say you're visiting Chaco culture now, and when you first get into the park, you'll see the campground, and then you come to the visitor center, so you can stop there and get your stamp and talk to the rangers and buy something in the gift shop, and then right there outside the visitor center starts that nine-mile loop drive. Yeah, and the the visitor center was nice, but uh, they had some display cases, they had some areas to display the artifacts, but there weren't any in there. I know. I was very disappointed to see these display cases sitting there, and they were they were empty because archaeologists have unearthed two million artifacts that have been buried throughout the ruins. Um, there were trade goods, pottery, tools, jewelry, all of that, and those things at the time were carted up and they were sent away to museums on the East Coast. The National Park Service wanted to bring those relics back home, as you can imagine, and feature them in the visitor center. So they built a brand new visitor center. This is was a multi-million dollar project, and it was designed to put these antiquities on public display for the very first time. And so they were going to showcase about 4,000 priceless artifacts on loan from museums across the U.S. So this new space opened to the public in 2017, but there was a big blunder, as the Park Service admits. Yeah, we learned about this when we were there in the visitor center. The heating and air conditioning system, the HVAC system, was not adequate to protect the artifacts. So they're having to remediate that. 
Right. I guess the building is too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter. And they spent more than $300,000 trying to troubleshoot this HVAC system. But it turned out that they had installed the wrong equipment for this harsh New Mexico climate. So now I am not sure what the plan is. There are still no artifacts in there. I don't know if they have to, I guess, install a whole new system. Yeah, I don't think those museums are going to give up their artifacts uh, until they get that fixed. Right. So there are Chaco Canyon relics in some of the museums on the East Coast. Now, if you happen to be in New Mexico, you can see artifacts at the Maxwell Museum of Anthropology in Albuquerque. Or you can also see some on the Chaco web exhibit site. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes. And some of the artifacts that we're talking about are things like prehistoric vessels, stone and bone tools, projectile points, hammers, hoes, digging sticks, corn cobs, turkey bones, and ornaments of uh, made from shells and turquoise and, and jet and bone. So all kinds of really interesting artifacts. And I hope... I hope that the visitor center will be able to rectify their their HVAC system and get these get turkey, these the turkey bones. I'd like to see the turkey. Bones. I know you would. Yes, and all kinds of prehistoric tools. I think you would be fascinated by that. Yeah, the the sharp pointed tips of spears and stuff like that. Arrows. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and um, I don't even know what some of these things are. Malls. I'm not sure what what a, a mall. A mall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to see a good mall. <laughs> what is a mall? <laughs> well, it's, you put it on the end of a stick and you swing it at somebody. Oh, okay. And, yeah, it changes their behavior. Oh, I bet it does. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So stay tuned for that. Hopefully at some point we will all be able to see these these treasures in person. Yeah, no, I'm sure they're going to fix that. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, they'll, they'll get it figured out. It might take a while. Right, right. All right. So then when you leave the visitor center and you start down the um, nine mile Canyon Loop Drive, there are some ruins that you'll come to before the Pueblo Bonita, but we'll just mention that because that is the greatest of the great houses. It's huge. Yes. I mean, it's absolutely huge. We actually went to several of these houses and did some hiking around. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this Pueblo Bonito, is it Bonita? Bonita. Oh, wait, I'm not it's sure. It's Bonita. What did a I lot write? of. Oh, you've been saying both. You've been off and on. <laughs> you've been changing it up. <laughs> oh, I haven't. I've written it two different ways. Bonito. I think it's Bonita. The Bonita. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's Spanish for beautiful. Can you just Google it right there? Let's get this right, shall we? Uh, all right. Um, it says Bonito. Oh, it does say Bonito? Pueblo Bonito, I think <laughs> that since Pueblo is ma- is masculine because it ends in O, then Bonita is beautiful. So Bonito would be a beautiful masculine <laughs> noun. So it's Pueblo Bonito, and you can laugh all you want, but later you'll look it up and you'll. No, I you'll, know you're you, right. I had high school and college Spanish. I'm just and, laughing yeah, because both high school and. <laughs> College Spanish. Yes, I yes went, so uh, why did you call it Benita all these times? I don't know, <laughs> I don't know but folks, we'll be starting some uh, some Spanish online class. Spanish classes for y'all soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna get the curriculum ready. What episode one hundred six? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> 
Okay, so let's talk about Pueblo Bonito. All right, um, <laughs> let's let's do that. Okay, so it was built in stages over a period of about 300 years between 850 and 1150 AD. It's huge. It covers three acres. And in its heyday, when it was built, uh, it had between six and 800 rooms they're guesstimating. They're guesstimating because they're not all there. Anymore. No, they're not there now. There some right. Rooms, but there's a right. bunch of them left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they can back into what the structure would have been by by seeing the footprint and what's left there. And and there are some interpretive drawings on signs close to the area that, that show what it would have looked like. It, it's pretty impressive. Oh, it's like a, almost like a whole city in and of itself. It had um, more than 350 ground floor rooms, 32 kivas, and three great kivas. And some of the areas of Pueblo Bonito were four and five stories high, and they were able to do that because they had really thick masonry walls, up to three feet thick, and they were held together by mortar made of mud. And the other thing, too, is they quarried these sandstone blocks and hauled timber from really great distances. Scientists tested the trees that were used to construct these buildings. You can still see some of these timbers that were used as roof structures for the different stories. It shows that the wood came from two distinct areas more than 50 miles away. Just imagine how much work that would have been for the builders to haul them all that way to the building site. I feel tired just thinking about it. Archaeologists estimate that it took 805,000 man hours to build the main structure at Pueblo Bonito. Wow. I know. For one great house. I would have built the house a little closer to the trees and and the quarried sandstone. You know, that is one of the mysteries of Chaco Canyon, Matt, is why would they build in this remote high desert area? That's it? That's you just you're We're just, just gonna state that mm-hmm. it's a mystery. Right. And right. you have no research to give us suggestions <laughs> as to what it would be. Right. But I <laughs> <laughs> But originally, archaeologists thought that um, Pueblo Bonito was, you know, a large city that had thousands of people living there. But they have now since kind of changed that thought due to the lack of trash that they have dug up. They're they're thinking that thousands of people did not live there because there would have been more trash. There would have been more trash? Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? What's trash back in 850 A.D.? Corn cobs? Turkey bones? Corn cobs? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I... So now they think that Pueblo Bonito was a ritual center. It might have served other roles as well. Ceremony, administration, trading, uh, storage, hospitality, astronomy, and also burial of some of the rulers of the area. So actually only a small portion seems to have served as living quarters. So there's a lot they still don't know about this city. That's right. But you know what's really fascinating is they have found out some more things recently. And one is this. So back in 1896, the archaeologists who were excavating Pueblo Bonito, and that would be Richard and his friends, they found the remains of 14 people in a burial crypt. Now, because of what was buried in with these people, there were necklaces and bracelets and intricate jewelry that was made up of thousands of pieces of turquoise. And there were wooden flutes and there were ceremonial staff. So they... they came to the conclusion that these were, you know, some type of rulers or people high up in the society of Chaco. 
So they packed up these bones and they sent them with everything else to the Natural History Museum in New York City, where they literally sat for more than 100 years. However, with the new science of DNA testing, researchers have since taken another look at the bones and they have run some DNA tests and they found out that these remains belong to a single maternal line, what they call the matrilineal dynasty that lasted for centuries. So basically what they're saying is these people were related. They found two pairs of individuals that were probably a mother-daughter and another one that was probably a grandmother and a grandson. So they're kind of changing some of their thinking on this. They think that there was an elite group that maybe held power there, and this influence flowed from mothers to their children and possibly ruled at Pueblo Bonito from its earliest days. So they had a ruling family. Right. Yeah. But what they don't know is, was this just a ruling family at Pueblo Bonito, or did they rule the entire Chaco Canyon? So still, Area, yeah. yeah, still unknown about that. You'll let us know. If, yes. If there's, just, there's, <laughs> if there's new future mm, developments on right. that. But anyway, we really enjoyed our time walking through Pueblo Bonito. There was um, an ongoing ranger led tour while we were there as well. That's right. Sometimes we just sidle up (laughs) to the group. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to sidle on the arranger-led tours, but we sidled a few times. But the good thing about sidling is then you can just walk away and and just act, you know, if if you're not interested in that particular talk, you just then go on your own. Well, yeah, and we hadn't uh, signed up for the tour because we were doing a big hike that day, and I didn't think we would be back in time for the ranger-led tour because we were on a very cool backcountry hike. We did a great hike. That was one of my favorite hikes of recent time. Yes. We like kind of deserty hikes. We do. And this one, so in the park, there are four backcountry hiking trails. Uh, We hiked one called Pueblo Alto Trail. Yeah, if you do that whole, the whole thing, it is 5.4 miles, has about 500 feet of elevation. Now you can do just the Pueblo Alto Ruin Round Trip, and that's 3.2 miles, or the Pueblo Bonito Overlook (laughs) Round Trip, which is only about two miles. If you have the time, I'd recommend doing the whole 5.4. It was amazing. It was probably one of our favorite hikes to date. So the ranger had recommended this to us. And what you do is the parking area for this hike is at the farthest point of the loop road. So you go out before you start looping back. There's a parking area there. The trailhead sits by the Kinkletso ruin. There is a fair amount of parking there. And then that's where you start from. You do have to fill out a little hiking permit um, before you do any hike in the park. I guess they want to keep track of who is who's out where. Yeah, it's one of those that you fill out, you just put it in the box, and then you put the stub on your backpack so that they, they know if you're out there, and at the end of the day, they know if they have to come looking for you. So we parked our car, and we were walking back towards this Kin Kletso ruin where the trail starts, and we were looking up at this cliff face to the top of the mesa. And all of a sudden, I realized, because the, the trail is on top of the mesa, so I was trying to figure out how we would get up there. And all of a sudden, I saw this like little narrow crack in the cliff face, which was the trail. Yeah, from the bottom, from where the trail starts, before you start going up the side of the cliff, up the mesa, you can't really tell how you're going to get to the top. And the crack doesn't look... I mean, it doesn't really look big enough to to get up and through. But once you 
climb up through there and you, you there's some bouldering involved it gets a little bit harder as you go up uh, but the crack is big enough yes it, it's big enough to go up and, and come down I think safely I mean it's it's a little challenging I will say when I first laid eyes on it I thought oh hell no no way am I going up there. And then you said something to the effect of... <laughs> okay, I'll Stop. see you in, a, in, in about three hours. I've got the keys to the truck. <laughs> My, Don't lean against one of these walls and the four inches of shade. <laughs> wow. No, I didn't. I, I, I gonna, actually didn't say any of I that, I? was going to say you were very encouraging, like, well, hey, let's just give it a try. Oh, no, that's what, that's what, that's what I said. <laughs> right, right. You can do it. I was encouraging. Uh, you are, I was you encouraging. Are. And so we did it. And the thing is, yes, you have to, you know, kind of scramble over some boulders. But for me, there was no feel of I'm going to fall a couple hundred feet down to certain death. There was not that feeling on this little scramble up. So it was probably, we were trying to figure out how long this little crack was. What did you say? I don't know. It's uh, maybe, maybe 100 feet. Or, or, of elevation. Oh, as elevation? Yeah. So elevation gain, getting up to the top of the mesa is maybe 300 feet. That crack, I, I don't know. The crack is maybe, it's not much, maybe 75 to 100 feet of that. Yeah. So I would say give it a try before you say no, because it's an amazing hike. And once you get up there, then it's pretty easy. It seemed a little long. It seemed a little longer than five and a half miles to me. But it from that point, it's fairly flat. There was one other kind of little scrambly place that was, you there, know. There was an odd spot kind mm-hmm. of at the, when you're about as far from the parking lot as you can get, that looked a little sketchy to get down, and this crack was literally 30 feet long. Mm-hmm. But then once we did it, it just looked harder th- than it actually was. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's also much easier than backtracking all the way back from where you came. And it's a lollipop loop. It's a, lo- it's a lollipop <laughs> loop. You finally got to use that. I know, I know. Don't get to use that very often. But it is cool to stand up there and look down on Pueblo Bonito because you can get a sense of the scale of it from above. And then a couple other cool things we saw along this trail. Um, and we did the lollipop loop, um, what, clockwise, right? You could do it either way. I don't think it matters. We did do it clockwise. Mm-hmm. Do people know what a lollipop loop is? Maybe you should explain. Well... If you look at a trail on a map, a lollipop loop on a map, you usually have a single trail out and then partway through the hike, it turns into a loop, comes back on itself, and then you take that one trail back to where you came from. And so it kind of looks like a lollipop. Right. There you exactly. Go. But a couple of cool things we saw. One was what they called the Jackson staircase. And it is how these Chacoan people, I guess, got up and down this one part of the canyon. And I would say, so this was a sheer canyon cliff vertical face, cliff face, and it had carved handholds and footholds in it. And a scariest thing I've ever seen. They probably didn't know about the crack. They probably didn't know. Or, or this was at the complete other end. So maybe they used the crack and this because they this, could have. Yeah. Yeah. But I can't even imagine scaling this vertical yeah. cliff. It yeah. Just... So so even though the none, none of these ruins were built into the cliffs, they were going up and down. Right. Well, so, and, and as we will say on this hike, there are other ruins up there on the mesa. Yes. So I don't know, they, they were traveling back and forth. And we did wonder, you know, so you have along this nine mile 
Canyon Loop Drive, you have what we'd call downtown Chaco. And then up on this mesa top, we encountered two other ruins. There was um, Pueblo Alto. What There was like old and new, I believe they called it. There were two side by right. side. Yeah, there yeah. were. And, and those were cool. That's the suburbs, the suburbs right. of, of the area. I guess those are for the people, residents who wanted to get away from the, the city, city life. So we, we uh, hiked in and around those for a while and then continued on the trail. And then we see these pottery shards just off the trail and actually a, a couple of them sitting on a rock. And a lot of times when you see that, there are places in the National Park Service system where you will have some pottery shards set there by the park to show you what some of the shards would have looked like when they were doing the excavating. And some of those are planted. Uh, Usually you see those in uh, these kind of heavily guarded areas where you can't get into the, the ruins. These were just right off the trail. The Park Service didn't put them there. Those were naturally occurring, or at least, you know, those have been there since whenever these people had lived there. It was such a cool thing to find these pottery shards because some of them were hand-painted. These were what? I mean, how big would you say they were? Like Like inch by inch. But there were a couple that were maybe a little bit bigger than that. Mm. But but some were big enough that you could see the designs and painted on on them. So we actually held in our hand this pottery that was made more than a thousand years ago by these people. Just such an amazing experience. And so obviously we put them back right where we found them and It was cool that so far, at least, these pieces that we found, nobody had taken them. I think once you experience this place and you're you're up on this mesa and you're seeing these ruins, I don't know, it's such a special sacred place that I I would hope anyone would have a really hard time, you know, stealing these artifacts from the park. Yeah, well, I mean, it looked like from what we saw, people were just finding them and, and just placing them like on a rock. Uh, whenever you find something like that in a national park site, you're supposed to leave it where you find it, right? So that uh, you know, if if the park service does then come by, they 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 know it was found there, as opposed to you know carrying it in your pocket for a mile and then redistributing it. Right. So that was amazing. And we had a a great hike. Just know that this is uh, completely exposed up there. There is no shade of any kind. So you'd want to think twice, I think, before you do this in the summertime. Again, we were there in October. The weather was great. It was a perfect time to do it. But I can imagine it would be pretty brutal if you're doing it in July or August. It was a very mild day we were there. And it still felt a little strenuous. If you were there in the middle of the day during the summer, that could be a a dangerous hike. So just, you know, if you're going there in the summer, you know, plan on early in the day or later in the day to do a hike like that. And the other cool thing was we probably saw maybe three other hiking couples up there. Hardly anybody. Yeah. And and it was a pretty popular day. I mean, we were there on a weekend and, and in and around the visitor center, the other sites, there were a lot of people. So if you're in a place like that, this kind of goes for all the National Park Service sites, you go out on these trails and you get a mile down the trail and you're pretty much by yourself. That's the way to get some privacy in, mm-hmm. in these on these sites is just take a hike. Yes. And to see these um, more remote ruins and to find the pottery shards, that really made our visit to um, Chaco culture, I think, really added to it at least. Yeah. 
All right. So as I said before, there are a lot of unanswered questions about um, about Chaco Culture National Historical Park. I think people leave with more questions than answers. Like, why did people settle in this harsh environment where they have so few natural resources and and such um, such extremes in weather? And how did they build these great houses? And why would they build roads 30 feet wide with parallel, um, seemingly redundant road segments? And what was the main function of Chaco? Was it primarily residential or was it just for, you know, special occasions? Um, I think people people have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. And, you know, the bi- I think the big question about a lot of these ruins is why did they leave? They, they put all of this energy and imagine how much energy and sophistication it took to build all this and then they abandoned them. Exactly. They were seemingly very abruptly abandoned. One possible explanation, and this is, I think, something that the park talks about, is that there was an environmental collapse put into motion by two devastating droughts. Uh, One occurred in 1085 and the other in 1095. But there is another more controversial theory, one that paints a much darker picture of Chaco Canyon. For more than 40 years, a physical anthropologist and researcher named Christy Turner studied the human artifacts excavated at Chaco, and he found disturbing evidence of cannibalism and torture. Now, Turner didn't reject the standard explanations of Chaco's abandonment. His hypothesis was that cannibalism, along with drought, disease, and famine, sparked a period of chaos and violence, and that caused the retreat of the residents further afield into inaccessible cliff dwellings like Mesa Verde. Other archaeologists have also suggested that the evidence paints a portrait of a great civilization challenged by political unrest, a revolt against the ruling class, coupled with environmental disaster. The abandonment of the Chacoan Great Houses did leave a few interesting clues behind. For example, the huge timbers that formed the roofs of the kivas were removed and entrances to the kivas were bricked up, and the great kivas where the ruling elite lived, are scarred with fire damage. Yeah, it's such a fascinating mystery as to what really happened at Chaco. Uh, For any of you who would like to learn more, would like to read more, there is a lot of information online. Scientific journals have published articles over the last few decades about the artifacts that have been unearthed and the conclusions that archaeologists and anthropologists have drawn about the lives of these people. So Matt, that is why I have been down a rabbit hole researching this for days. It could actually be a three-hour episode. Without a doubt. Or five hours. (laughs) Right. It could. But we'll wrap it up for now. So for for all the people who want to visit Chaco Culture, how many days do you think they should uh, plan for a visit? One day, probably. Well, yeah. If you wanted to see all the ruins, you want to do the hike, maybe a couple of days. You could camp there. Mm -hmm. You could come out, camp, take your time, do the hike, uh, and then have a little more leisure time to see all the ruins, uh, maybe do a night sky thing, yes. right, at the mm-hmm. uh, observatory. 
More than a couple days, I think, would be too much, unless you're just hanging out at the campsite and that's where you're going to spend the week. But yeah, for the park itself, I'd say a couple days at the most. Right. And we did, we should mention too, we did meet a couple we were talking to in the parking lot and they were dispersed camping. So if the campground is full, you could also look into some dispersed camping because I think spending the night out there would be ideal. It's a long way to drive back and forth for two days from, let's say, Farmington where we stayed. But if you can camp... That's ideal. And just one more note, too. As we said, there are three more backcountry hikes that we didn't have time to do. That would be fun. But if you're not a hiker and you have some mobility issues, the great houses that are located along the Loop Drive are fairly easy to navigate. Don't you think, Matt? Right. The parking lots are close to the ruins and the area is mostly flat with pathways. However, the ruins themselves are not wheelchair accessible. So it would be fun for people to plan a whole Four Corners um, archaeological history tour and and hit Mesa Verde and Hovenweep and Chaco Culture and some of the other great sites and just make an entire road trip out of it. Yeah, yeah. And it's there's also, we didn't talk about it on this episode, but there's a lot of other public lands right there. There's Bureau of Land Management land. When we visited Chaco Culture the day before, we had hiked in some BLM land that was beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, unique landscape. There's not a lot of civilization in that northwestern part of New Mexico in terms of towns where a lot of open public land and interesting things to explore and see. Absolutely. All right, that's all for today. Thank you for hanging out with us for the last hour or so. Yeah, we'll post some links on our show notes to websites that have more information about Chaco culture. Our show notes can be found for this episode on www.thedearbobandsuepodcast.com. And we'll be back next week with our monthly mailbag episode. And it's going to be, how can I describe it? It's going to be El Episodio Estupendo. (laughs) What does that mean? Does that mean it's stupid? It's a stupid episode? No, no, not a stupido. Estupendo. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it it might be both. (laughs) Chances are good.